Good morning. It's Monday, the 19th of February, and this is Govind Rajathi Raj broadcasting from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Observing a bank holiday today because of Shivaji Jayanti. The bank holiday means banks are shut in the state of Maharashtra, where we are, but their operations are running and the stock markets are open. Our top stories and themes for the day. From Dalal Street to Wall Street, it's all about valuations. Oil prices hit a 2024 high as Middle East tensions rise again. China's foreign direct investment is down 82% from 2022. Do India's farmers earn enough? And India's aviation regulator wades in from freeing up airport slots to ensuring baggage arrives on time. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Steady cues for this week in the markets. Depending on which cues they take, Indian markets should or ought to open steady to strong as markets in the region, notably China, as traders digest strong travel and tourism data on returning from their lunar New Year break. Looking back at last week, before we come back to today, the Sensex rose about 1.16% to 72,427, while the Nifty 50 rose 1.19% to 22,041. So, while India's general elections to be held most likely April onwards are likely to see the BJP return to power at the centre, the markets are taking further encouragement for the same fact from recent pre-poll surveys that point to that outcome. Last week, auto stocks did well and we also spoke on the core report of record passenger vehicle sales in January, though manufacturers are now producing beyond what dealers can stock, who in turn are complaining about high inventory levels. Public centre bank stocks also did well, led by State Bank of India, the largest of them all. While domestic investors continue to hold up and indeed pump up the market, foreign portfolio investors are still being cagey about equities. Foreign investors sold stock worth close to 3,700 crores net this month, possibly due to interest rates remaining high in the United States. In January, they pulled out about 25,000 crores, so they've been net sellers since the beginning of the year. The story is different in debt as we've been discussing here and foreign investors have invested over 16,000 crores in the last month and over close to 20,000 crores in January. So that's over 36,000 crores in two months. Meanwhile, India's foreign exchange reserves have snapped a two-week gaining streak to hold at about $617 billion as of February 9th, according to Reuters. The reserves fell by about $5.2 billion in the reporting week And that was their steepest fall in a month, having risen by about $6.3 billion in the prior two weeks. From Dalal Street to Wall Street, it's about valuation. Valuations have been a concern in India for some time. In the first week of January, Kotak Securities, the stock brokerage, said it believed the Nifty index was overvalued by 20% and expected a time correction in the next six to nine months. Now, this obviously comes on the back of a strong 2023 for Indian stock markets, its best since 2017, with the Nifty 50 and the Sensex rising 20 and 19% respectively. And then there were the mid-cap and small-cap indices, which rose by 46% and 48%. Now, you can't ask for more. Now, on Wall Street, the US markets are holding strong too, but they are also being significantly driven by tech, or more specifically, the Magnificent 7, which includes Tesla, Meta, that's Facebook, Google, and so on. A Bank of America analyst team has now said that there are a host of similarities between tech stocks now and previous bubbles, which suggests that the Magnificent 7 is nearing, but not yet at, 
levels that may lead to a pop, reports Bloomberg. Bond yields adjusted for inflation seen as a proxy for tight financial conditions are a common way for stock market bubbles to burst, wrote a team led by Michael Hartnett of Bank of America, according to Bloomberg. By their math, and I'm going slow here, given all the debt sloshing around the global financial system, the real yield, which subtracts inflation from the Treasury 10-year yield, would have to reach 2.5% or 3% to end the investor craze for artificial intelligence and mega cap tech. So whether it's artificial intelligence or mega cap, that's not the issue, but it's the yield that matters that could pull money away from stocks. So that yield is currently around 2%. Another metric that Hartnett's team mentioned is that the gains are smaller than other bubbles measured trough to peak. Since a low in December 2022, the Magnificent 7 has jumped about 140%. Now, this is not the same as the 190% surge seen during the internet bubble for the Nasdaq composite or the 230% rally of FANG stocks, which again is a similar composition from COVID lows. Of course, during the internet bubble, many of those companies did not have any real businesses and of course do not exist today. But obviously, when stock prices reach such highs and so soon, it is time to do some careful stock taking. And it's for roughly the same reason that investors are wary about valuations of Indian companies, even as they acknowledge the soundness of the fundamentals. And this is also the reason institutional investors have been heavily advocating shifting to large cap stocks since January. In some ways, the warning is perhaps apt because it ought to make one think of what stocks one is invested in rather than fret about the market as a whole. These warnings, whether on Dalal Street or Wall Street, also remind us that there is something, a force of nature, called gravity. Oil hits a 2024 high. Oil, that's Brent crude, is now closed around $83.47, its highest this year, as increasing tensions in the Middle East outweighed all the positives particularly on supply and demand that have been keeping prices down for the last few months. West Texas Intermediate rose above $79 a barrel after Hezbollah chief Hassan Nasrallah said the group will escalate its fight with Israel, heightening risks in a region that accounts for about a third of the world's oil output, Bloomberg reported. The International Energy Agency in Paris said this week that oil markets could be in a surplus all year, something we reported last week as well. Crude is up about 10% this year, near the top of the range it has traded in since early November. China's FDI falls sharply. China's foreign direct investment stood at about $33 billion last year, 82% down on 2022, according to data from the State Administration of Foreign Exchange released Sunday and reported by Bloomberg. That measure of new foreign investment into the country, which records monetary flows connected to foreign-owned entities in China, has now slumped to its lowest level since 1993. The moral of the story, I guess, is that you cannot take foreign direct investment for granted. Do India's farmers earn enough? Now, that's a very simplistic question, perhaps. but. Farmers are now protesting around Delhi, as you perhaps have been following, demanding higher minimum support prices for their produce. The calculations for this minimum support price are complex and there is much history and, of course, politics to it. Last week, we spoke to Crystal Ratings Director Pushan Sharma, who pointed out that the government would only buy crops trading in mandis or agricultural marketplaces below the minimum support price, which is the real cost to the government, assuming about 16 of 23 crops, which account for about 90% of production of field crops. 
According to him, this figure would be about 21,000 crore rupees. Now, the figure is not the point here right now because the mechanics of this, like I said, are complicated at least to get into right now. One larger question, however, is what are the farmers' incomes and the importance of viewing it from that perspective since it is lower incomes that at least conceptually are driving their protests rather than the prices of their produce, at least if one were to view it from an economic and not political perspective. I reached out to Shankar Ayer, veteran economic journalist, author, columnist, and a regular guest on our show, who addressed this issue in his weekend column in the New Indian Express. And I began by asking him the straightforward question, where does India really stand in terms of farmers' incomes? It is basically like an industrial enterprise. So area into yield is equal to income. So if you have whatever is the area of your plot and whatever is the yield. Now the first point is that the average size of holding for almost 8 out of 10 farmers is less than 2 hectares. So that isn't going to yield you too much. And India's yield of cereals, paddy and wheat, is way below what it should be given all the work that's happening in some of the institutes. I mean, so on wheat, for instance, UK has a yield of around 7,000 kilos or 7 tons per hectare. India's average is about 3,500 kilos or 3.5 tons per hectare. Now that, obviously, when you have a smaller size of the field or holding, land holding, the income comes down. The second part is that you could make better incomes from a smaller size of the holding, provided you want the forward and backward linkages, which is like any enterprise has the ability to go and take orders on the basis of those orders, borrow money from a fetal letter of credit, use that to buy inputs, book forward orders, go online and place its produce for future purchase, securitize its receivables. And the cycle goes on. Now, the farmer in India can't do that because suppose he's growing tomato or sugarcane or onion. So one of the government might just decide that, you know, they were to ban exports. So the big differential, the availability of profit is in the arbitrage between the Indian costs and the overseas global market costs. And that cannot be tapped till the government has this stranglehold on what it allows to be exported, where it allows to be exported, and at what price it's allowed to be exported. Effectively, the farmer is still in license large. Right. Okay, so if I were to bring you back to what the farmer earns, as I understand, the average farmer income is less than half of what her or his urban counterpart is. So the rural income, capital income, is around 40,000 rupees. And the urban per capita income is around 98,000 rupees. Now, these are dated figures because the government doesn't do this like on a regular basis. But in 2018 and 19, they came up with the average monthly household income of agricultural families, or rather, the average monthly agricultural household income. And that was amazing. It comes to an average of 1.2 lakh per year or 10,000 plus per month. Now, assuming the average size of an agricultural household or a rural household is five or four, you know what per person income in that family is. And this, again, has geographical variations. So if you were in Punjab, it's probably 
three times. And if you're in Bihar, it's one four. So the average household, monthly household income for a farmer in Punjab is estimated at around 26,000. While it is 7,000 something in Bihar, and believe it or not, it's around 5,000 in Jharkhand. Now, a lot of factors go into this. Quality of the land, the quality of the irrigation, whether this import, what they are growing, and what is the market price for those areas. All of this brings us back to the central point is that we have to treat India's agriculture like Germany and Japan treat their medium and small scale industries. They made it the bonvoir of their economic growth. And unless the government finds a way to recast the landscape of regulations, it's going to be very difficult for them to improve the income of farmers. I mean, you know, all of this MSP and what the education is going on on is going to be at the end of the day, band-aid. What they need is an open operating system of regulations which allows the farmers singly or in a collective like an SPO to go and negotiate create backward and forward structures of what they want to grow, see what the market wants, grow accordingly, and they'll do the securitization. Right. So if we were to look at some of the calculations that have been done, including by rating agency Crystal, where they seem to suggest that the gap between the MSP and the actual price that the government may have to pay is actually not that much. I think 21,000 crore. But be that as it may, even if assuming, let's say, the government were to provide MSP for 23 crops or all 23 crops, does that mean that the lot of farmers would improve? And in as much as it will change that 40,000 or 41,000 rupees per capita income figure? There are two things to it. So the MSP, you know, I've written this in great detail in my book, Accelerated India. There's a whole chapter on green revolution and how it came. Basically, came because we had a crisis and the US shut down shipments to India. Now, the MSP theoretically provides a slow for the price. But the MSP cannot improve your income profile unless your yield profile changes. Now, there are some states which have patched up a vegetable, horticulture, two crop systems, and dairy farming through the agricultural household. And that has improved a lot. For that, we have to thank Varghese Kurian and the Amul Revolution for that. The other thing that used to happen with Maharashtra, we had a system of cooperatives where the cooperatives were formed around the idea of sugarcane farming in the sugar mill, but they did other allied activities such as fishing, in some places it was poultry, in some places most of them owned dairies. And they were the primary suppliers of milk to greater Bombay for a number of years. Now, you can create secondary subsidiaries to the agricultural household. But the agricultural household's income will only improve if he is output from the land. What is his capital asset? His capital, I mean, any factor of the is land and labor. So his land, the quantity, the size of the holding, and what labor he puts in it, plus the inputs, what kind of access he has to credit, what kind of inputs he's using, what is the market access. So it comes back to the same point that, you know, India's agriculture is shattered by an impact market condition. 
Right. Okay. So if you were to look ahead and look at the income part, so one way I think by default or willy-nilly the agricultural sector or those in the agricultural sector have responded is to really go to urban centers and find jobs. Or in the case of, let's say, some of the northern states, they've tried to and are migrating overseas in search of better jobs, better opportunities. So is that then the only other solution, which is, you know, I mean, accept that farm incomes may not really go up or not really beyond a point in the foreseeable future. But the improvement in people's lives and their livelihoods could only come if they migrate or industry comes to them or something else comes to them. Well, Govin, you now opened the Pandora's box. So basically what you're looking for is a development economics answer. So here, first things first, India has a circular migration of people estimated to be between 300 million and 400 million across states or whatever. I think roughly about a fourth of that is people who own farmland, who take seasonal employment in urban centers, mostly with construction and others. So this is why if you see the construction and infrastructure takes out, there is some amount of improvement because those jobs are at the intersection of rural and urban The second part, how do they improve their lot? I mean, you know, do they have the skills? What is the level of their education? What is the dropout level? All of this will play into it. But a large number of families, particularly in Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, and Odisha, have sort of prevailed over their circumstance by doing part-time or seasonal employment in urban areas, going back home, growing the crop, leaving it to some relative, wife, son, somebody to harvest it, and they'll come back for the job in the urban centers. And so that cycle has kept them going. That is keeping the rural economy going. I think that if you were to work to want to improve the income levels, you have to do two or three things. One is to settle the regulatory landscape of agriculture. The second is to find some ways to skill those people who are migrating seasonally so they get better jobs or better options. So there are a lot of people who travel abroad for jobs. For jobs, for instance, a number of them are going abroad because beyond the season, there is nothing certainly create the number of jobs that those the youth there needs. Nor does Bihar create that number of jobs that are needed. So if the state governments took the lead and fixed the regulatory system in agriculture, opened it up to markets, if they inducted till development programs, if they converted all those investment milas in all this kinetic Karnataka and magnetic Maharashtra that you see, if some of those investments create jobs in the tertiary manufacturing sector, then maybe things could improve. I mean, the simple fact of it is, 25% of the workforce in India is engaged in agriculture and must live on one-sixth of the national income, which is where the entire location of the poverty debates. Right. Uh, Shankar, thank you so much for joining me. Always a pleasure, The aviation regulator steps up the ante. India's aviation ministry and its regulator, the Director General of Civil Aviation or DGCA, appear to be getting more customer and flyer focused, at least going by some very recent actions. In its latest missive, the DGCA has asked airlines to ensure that all baggage of passengers are delivered within 30 minutes of landing of a flight at an airport. 
Now, this directive from the Bureau of Civil Aviation Security, which is a part of the same ministry to seven scheduled airlines, also comes against the backdrop of delays in passengers getting their baggage after landing of a flight, according to the business standard. The Bureau has now asked airlines to ensure timely delivery of baggage by implementing the right systems by February 26th. And here is where I discovered something interesting. Airlines have to ensure that delivery of the last baggage is made within 30 minutes as per the service quality requirements of Operation Management and Delivery Agreement or the OMDA as it's called. The mandate requires that the first baggage to arrive at the baggage belt within 10 minutes of shutting off the aircraft engine and the last bag within 30 minutes of the same, the statement said. So if you did not know this earlier, which is that your baggage could be in your hands in 10 minutes or the max of 30 minutes, you know it now. I would acknowledge that on domestic flights, baggage usually arrives fast, but that's far from the situation on international flights when the system seems to completely cave in under the load and you could be standing there for even an hour. Anyway, the DGCA earlier also asked Mumbai Airport to reduce the number of scheduled flights and restrict the movement of business jets during rush hours in a bid to reduce congestion and improve on-time departures. The move is expected to force airlines to cut some 40 flights and, of course, hit operations of private jets used by some of India's biggest business houses. Mumbai Airport is owned by the Adani Group and is the second busiest in the country after Delhi and sees heavy movement of passenger jets, according to the Economic Times. Now, there must be some high-intensity back-channel lobbying going on, so we will update you on developments as they happen. Yes, and I've also not got amnesia about how the DGCA could have clearly better handled the cascading fog-induced delays last month around the country. It clearly needs to change its procedures and be more liberal in the way people move or are allowed to move around airports, even as it's conscious of security. For example, allowing passengers back onto the terminal on delays or allowing mixed-use airports, which means you could depart and arrive in the same terminal or at the same level, like in the United States. And finally, the DGCA hauled up Air India after an 80-year-old passenger who had asked for but did not get a wheelchair on landing from New York last week collapsed after the long walk to immigration. Reports said the passenger was taken to Nanavati Hospital for treatment but was pronounced dead on arrival. Nanavati Hospital, by the way, is quite far from the airport. In this case, while the DGCA has rightly taken up the matter with the airline, it's also a fact that there are many passengers who monopolize wheelchairs because it takes them with greater ease through immigration and customs. Ports again said that there were about 32 wheelchair passengers on this flight and only 15 turned up when the aircraft landed and the other passengers, including the man who died, were asked to wait, at least according to the airline. Now, I've personally seen very fit-looking and sprightly, admittedly old people who seem to show no signs of wear and tear when getting off the wheelchair at the aerobridge or after getting off the wheelchair at the arrivals. The DGCA perhaps needs to segregate wheelchair passengers from those who could go on a buggy because the walk to immigration can be a long one, particularly after an exhausting and claustrophobic 14 to 15 hour flight. And conversely, I would think. On that note, that's it for me for today, the beginning of the week. Have a great week ahead. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. 
We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core dot in. And thank you once again for listening.